Hello and welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider News. I'm Jason Bates. Today I'm joined by my Fintech 11FS colleagues, Simon Taylor and Andra Sinea. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hi. And joining us to bring sanity and knowledge to our world, we've got two great guests. Liz Lumley, fintech person of interest, commentator, startup Svengali, and room crasher. That wasn't me. (laughs) Say hi, Liz. Hello. And Mike Hurley, co-founder of Relay FM, a podcast network, and previously an ex-branch manager at a bank. And And a marketing manager, too. No, no. And a marketing manager too? Yes, I spanned across the board. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're no longer a complete banker. (laughs) I can tell you I'm very happy about this. So everyone's here, drinks in hand. Let's get on with the news. So first up, if you've been hiding in a Zen monastery or most likely had your PC turned off for a week to try and avoid uh, the, the first story, it's WannaCry or WannaCrypt. It has everything. Hospitals having problems, governments, businesses affected, questions about software updates, NSA uh, leaks, cryptocurrency. We could just spend basically the whole hour it's just talking Bitcoin about villains. this. This is awesome. I feel like it's like 2009. It has every kind of, <laughs> every kind of boogeyman yeah. and you couldn't go see your GP. It was perfect. It was like so quintessentially British and yet so international and yet so zeitgeist. No wonder this story and, took off. And an accidental hero as well, right? The guy who just stumbled across a domain name which stopped the, the spreading. So, so let's amazing. rewind this. For those very few people who don't know anything about it, can someone give us the uh, the background? What's this about? I'm going to give it a go. Okay. Go so on, for as much as I've seen of it, so very kind of a, a basic overview, this is like a worm. This is a software virus that has spread its way across Windows XP machines throughout the country, throughout the planet, actually. I think Russia, I read, was the most affected. Um, nobody's 100% sure where it's coming from, but the basically these software, this software, these worms are infecting PCs, shutting them down, and you have to pay, was like 200 pounds or something like $300. $300 in Bitcoin, and it's kind of spiraled out of control. So we all there. know that people that are on Windows XP are really clued up on what Bitcoin is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like somebody... That's a really good point, actually. How are they even making the payments? It, it, that's this crazy thing. It's kind of like somebody comes along and puts a clamp on your car, and then the only way to get the clamp out of your car is to like do something really sophisticated that you have no chance of doing if you got that clamp on your car. It's, it's kind of ironic. And there are some conspiracy theorists out there who I think are massively wrong, but I can see how they got there, um, are saying, well, this was obviously a conspiracy by the NSA to make Bitcoin look bad. Because, uh, because it's the number one priority of any people on the internet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although um, there are rumors, of course, that this uh, this zero day, this worm, the exploit that was used in Windows XP, did actually come from the security agency. Oh, it did. It was yeah, it was released. NSA. It was uh, the NSA had a whole series of um, amount of data stolen. Uh, a group then tried to auction that on the web didn't get any buyers, then released it. And so this eternal blue exploit, which was something to do with the Samba um, file sharing system on Windows XP, uh, was then was then thrown open. So you could have some some malware, something that, that installed a virus on your PC. But you, had, but you had to click on the link. You did? Yes. So you had to install it. Had to have human with, error. And then, then that reached out to every other PC it could find on the network and then spread itself uh, around. So, I mean, we've had some big worms. We had I Love You and My Doom in the, like, if you th- look way back, that caused, like, 
billions. Millions and millions billions. of pounds worth yeah. of damage. Maybe billions. Maybe well, so Microsoft no longer support Windows XP. And what this kind of says to me is, like, if you're... I, I'm thinking there's a lot of banks out there. There's probably even um, a lot of financial services companies out there that still have a lot of Windows XP in their estate. Yeah. And actually, that's that's dangerous, right? And you can now see that this is almost like an idiot tax on having old software or Microsoft software. Like, if you have that software, you can also see who the people are that don't know how to use email properly because the people who've got infected are also the people who will have clicked on one of those links. But then these things look kind of plausible, especially if you're not used to using this stuff. So you can see how it happens. What's interesting to me about this one, though, is it's kind of, it's gone after, it's been really visible. It's been really obvious that it's affected public services, where historically these uh, ransomware attacks, usually when they're more sophisticated, go after a bank directly. They've got a targeted uh, organization in which they're going for. It never makes the news. You get some little press release about why the systems were down inside of a bank, and then no, nothing has ever heard about this ever again. So, which says to me this wasn't a particularly sophisticated attack. Andrew, I can see I, you've got I, some thoughts. I, <laughs> um, I think that banks take security uh, seriously because they, they run most of their business digitally. Now, sure. if, if we think it's good or not, their digital service, it's something else. But they do take security seriously, and that's why they have not been affected. I, I think about this situation in NHS and probably many other public, service, public institutions in, in UK which had their budget cut and the IT guy who would try to explain, you know, it's important, security is important, this could happen, and still the, the, the decision was taken. This, this is for me like a, 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 a crime, in a way, uh, to decide to, to leave these systems exposed. Um, somewhere a decision was taken in UK for the size of NHS, for example, that there is no policy, there is no... Uh, it looks very unprofessional, and I'm sure it was not unprofessional. I'm sure NHS has security people, you know, out there who probably were begging for the money to, to do something about it. And I think what what happened in, in NHS is not only this lack of, of strategy and action and so on, but there are a lot of um, equipment <laughs> um, which use... Uh, yeah, you've have, got MRI scanners and CT yeah, scanners yeah, with embedded yeah, exactly. software in. And, and, and if you've spent sort of 10 or 15 million on one of these big scanners, uh, yeah. and, you know, who are you going to to yeah. pay in order to, to update these things. Yeah, and, and I think what annoys me in, in all this is that there is no serious discussion about the, the responsibility and the model of how of how this works. Because we have on one side these institutions which are supposed to take care of us, you know, but by, by spying on us. But on the other side, they should they should have a, 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 a they should take a proactive uh, attitude to protect the, the institutions which are essential for, for a country, you know, like uh, this one. And if, if you read the National Cybersecurity Strategy public, published like last year in, in November, with this uh, event in mind, it's laughable. It's, oh, it's, it's just laughable. Well, and it's laughable because of this idea that um, there is such magic in which you could um, instruct somebody to put a backdoor into every type of cryptography ever so that then if anything ever went wrong or terrorism ever happened, you could totally decrypt any conversation. Whereas actually, every time you store a backdoor, somebody can steal it and use it to do something like this. But, but equally, you might say, I'm plain devil's advocate, I don't agree with that with the backdoor theory at all. But actually, if without 
cryptography, this wouldn't be able to happen on two ways. Firstly, um, the ransomware encrypted your PC with, with strong encryption. So you've got your data, you've got everything there, and basically the everything's been encrypted with someone, and, and no one can put the compute power necessary to, to decrypt that without the key. So instantly you've, you know, someone's taken all of your stuff without taking it from your PC. And if we, and didn't, secondly, have cars, if we didn't have cars, nobody would die on the roads. Sure, <laughs> but secondly, then uh, we've there's uh, using Bitcoin as a way of, of a non Anonymously uh, moving money around the world in order that thieves can uh, and you know blackmailers so can get came out and said can get the FT yeah. came out and said this only happened because Bitcoin exists, which I thought was remarkably enlightened from the FT. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's kind of like I, again, saying, let me take a guess of who wrote that. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of like saying crime only exists because I don't know. There's now cryptography. It's kind of obtuse. Like I can see crime existing because there are bad people in the world, but but this this thing is is kind of out there. Like sure. This uh, Bitcoin does actually make it really, really easy to link a cryptographic locker to a cryptographic key that unlocks that and unlocks your PC in order for you to get payment. But it's also massively transparent. So if you want to get caught money laundering, use Bitcoin. Unless you're really, 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 really sophisticated, in which case you can hide yourself on Bitcoin. But then compare this to the existing financial system. More crime happens in the US dollar than any other currency in the world by about 10 to 1. Um, of the crime that happens in the US dollar, there's an estimated 2 trillion of money laundering every year. Of that 2 trillion, we see 2% of that in the system. Of the 2% we see, we prosecute 2%. So the, the we have a shoddy, shoddy financial system. But, but having that, said that, um, I think, again, that's a little bit you know tangential because if Bitcoin wasn't here and with all the AM, uh, AML and KYC and everything else that interbank transfers need, how would you have got money out? So I don't think it's like, you know, I don't know, people wouldn't die if there weren't cars, but we need cars. It's like, I don't know, murders happen less when there aren't handguns lying around. Um, so, you know, handguns do have a part to play. And I actually think Bitcoin and the anonymous transfer of money across the globe um, also has, you know, because we've seen the um, Disney film held, held to Bitcoin ransom but again. There are, there are so lots of crime. There are, less, there are less positive uses of a handgun than there are like uses of money because surely, yes, you can use money for bad, but you can use money for good. The fact that you've changed how you transfer it, it the point is the actual colliery here is the US dollar. The US dollar can be used for good and bad. The British currency can be used for good and bad. The idea that Bitcoin is anonymous is a misnomer. You can trace every transaction throughout history very, very easily. Yes, you can't necessarily peg an identity onto it, but it's tr relatively trivial to do that. Um, there are companies like Chainalysis and Scorechain. Um, it's the reason we caught the people behind Silk Road uh, is because it's actually relatively trivial, unless you're really, really, really sophisticated. I was going to say, there are tumblers. You can change it into different currencies in unregulated uh, or different cryptocurrencies and unregulated exchanges. But it's all and, traceable. And I'm sure there's a... But it's all you know. traceable. So if somebody's using a tumbler, then you know that there's suspicion. If, and then you can follow the money. So yes, they've tumbled it through 30 different places, but I can see the 30 different places that they moved it to. And then they move it to another 30 places, but I can see all of those 30 places they moved it to. So you just follow the money and eventually it comes out at a bank account. And you hope that when it comes out at a bank account, the actual financial system can keep up 
top. The biggest problem you've got isn't Bitcoin; it's the financial system as it exists today. Oh, I think that's a, I think that's a cop out. <laughs> uh, uh, and that is the position of several uh, regulators and uh, law enforcement agencies, because they're active users of those services. And indeed, the NSA came out on uh, CoinDesk a couple of days ago, and I, I can't remember where they made the speech, saying that Bitcoin isn't something we should be afraid of. I think uh, law enforcement is actually now starting to in- gently encourage the idea of this sort of transparency in financial services. What do you think, Mike, as an ex-bank manager? <laughs> well, I'll say on the Bitcoin point, I understand what you're saying about the traceability, but I don't necessarily think that the people that are in, that are spreading this think they can be traced as easily. Oh, of course. Right, so like the idea of, of this not existing about Bitcoin, I actually think that there is a real sense in that because there is no... I don't think there's any way that somebody who's putting a hack like this in place or a worm like this in place would put a bank account number in there. Like they, there would be no financial incentive for them unless Bitcoin existed. Otherwise, they'd just be doing it for fun. Ransomware used to exist with PayPal email addresses um, and it was then they'd have mule accounts. And but like I think them. today, because like, then, I think back then, people thought that PayPal was what Bitcoin is now. Yeah. Like an untraceable system. It's like, oh, I'll just set up a Gmail account anywhere. Like So I, I think that without these systems that seem to be or like perceptually are untraceable, these types, these types of things wouldn't exist. Yeah, and, and they, I would agree with that. They are perceiving that they can get away with it. Yeah. That's why they're doing it. But the point I'm making is they can't. So to assume yeah. it's at fault is to miss the nuance. Well, okay, but what I was going to say, like, same if we put in these cryptography backdoors in, a lot of that doesn't really matter, right? Because if you're looking at what the arguments will be from government agencies, right? Like this is another example of why there should be backdoors this 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 wanna cry will be used as this is why we need cryptography backdoors so we can stop this stuff happening and the irony is of course they it don't realize this th- it came from a backdoor but that doesn't matter because it's they they realize it but it's what the general public will realize and right? one podcast at a time you yeah. listeners are going to turn public perception this, around this is going to become like another platform probably in the election Right for for technology reform and for GCHQ to put more in place to make sure these things will never happen again. So there'll be backdoors in absolutely everything. So from one hack to another, Andra, after years of warning, mobile network hackers have finally exploited SS7. Uh, can you explain what's going on there? Yeah, so it's it's not the first exploit. It's just the first exploit which uh, touches the banking world. And it happened in Germany where a type of interaction with a, with a customer for uh, doing a transaction is um, requires the bank to send a, a PIN, a code, a TAN code, uh, to the user by, by the text message. Uh, so what happened in this process is that the hackers used a flaw in a protocol which is called uh, SS7, Signaling System 7. And this protocol um, is uh, responsible for forwarding actually calls and messages, but also uh, transmitting uh, data packages from, uh, from, from your phone. So, so, so I understood that in the 80s, it was what was needed in order to allow telcos and, and network operators to interconnect and yeah. exchange data. 
Um, but it was it was put in place so that I could look into any back end system in any telco in the world and not only get data, but listening on calls, redirect, yeah. do anything globally. Yeah, there were there are a number of things. Uh, so actually, in the GSM network, only the phone um, authenticated itself, but not the network. Now it's different. The phone authenticate, but the network needs to authenticate itself. Uh, so when the um, protocol was was created, this this was the situation. All also, uh, the the channel used for uh, sending um, this this channel SS7 for sending data is different from from the voice channel. So it sends a lot of information about you and your phone in order to pass you from one node to the other. Yeah. So this is when they can uh, hack it very easily. So this this happened now in the in the banking world, and the accounts were emptied simply because somebody could interfere in this exchange. Basically, they forwarded the messages to yeah. another phone, yeah. and usually during the night they um, <laughs> entered in the account and they emptied the account of that respective. So again, uh, this it's it's quite sophisticated because they had to essentially take control of someone's PC. They had to get their credit banking credentials and then then pay someone or access a, a telco network in order to then when they went to log in and, and move a ton of money uh, around they got a, a two-factor authentication message to their their cell phone yeah. that then these guys redirected i mean like this is a again the plot yeah. of a film this it's is very a targeted yeah. this one super targeted, sophisticated you know. way more sophisticated yeah. than the last one this is this is really really clever stuff isn't it but it has been it has been done before. Uh, uh, I think it has been done before many times. But um, uh, in 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 public, uh, it, be, uh, it became um, how much news. Money, how much money was stolen? Not much. But the or they don't make public the this information. How much money uh, had been stolen? So so the guy who who disclosed how this works and why it's flowed, he he did this in a presentation at a conference in Germany in 2014, and um, so you can you can see it if you want. It's, it's very it's very interesting. But also in 2014, uh, another hack happened using SS7, and it was during the time of um, conflict around Crimea between Russia and Ukraine. Right. Uh, so the phones of the American um, diplomats in Ukraine have been hacked using this method, uh, and there is a lot of information about it. So it, it's a known hack, you know, and it. <laughs> Yeah, phones are easier to hack these days. Yeah, and and um, but is this not another thing about legacy technology, legacy networks, legacy infrastructure? Whether it's Windows XP boxes that haven't been updated, and even though all of the big problems were fixed in like Service Pack Two or something, are still open, and you've got this old uh, protocol that is you know unsecure and can be exploited. You know how many other protocols and old tech is there, especially in banks? I guess you know. The funny thing about this SS7 thing is it is it, the way that they can really get it to you is by hacking the two-factor, which is something that we're all supposed to be doing now to be more secure. So like I, when I read this, I was like, well, now I need to change everything because I use a bunch of text message two-factors. But there are a lot of things like uh, OTP, one-time passwords, which are all done via applications. So now I'm going to have to move to those. 
right, to stop myself getting these SMS messages. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the standard for a lot of online banking. Some yeah. online banks, you will go to make a payment to a new payee for faster payments, which is anything up to £100,000. And they say, and this happens, you know, banks do this around the world. It's not just the UK. This this one-time pin I know is used heavily across Europe. Um, I've seen it in um, uh, Latin America. I've seen it in Southeast Asia. It, it's kind of the, oh, well, we've got a second factor of authentication. So we're kind of secure now, except for when somebody hacks the phone of our customers, in which case they're not uh it's 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 kind of hard for the banks in this case because the alternative was sending out those old card readers which everybody oh. i mean i was uh, <laughs> I, so everyone the, loves those <laughs> the bank that i worked for i was working in the branches when they sent those keys out and it was just it was pandemonium people were going crazy You're like lines out the door people just didn't want this to carry around this keychain with them every time they wanted to log on to their internet banking app so this brings the balance like how much fraud is acceptable b- before you're annoying your customers because you're gonna have some fraud but how much do you want to annoy your customers going about day-to-day life because not all of the customers are going to be defrauded all of the time using these exploits actually how much is it going to happen and where's the balance between your know, really nice easy to use products that and protecting customers because a lot of what you see from the banks at the moment is more around uh, customer education. Uh, we've seen um, Barclays have a lot of adverts in the in the on TV at the moment about this sort of stuff, really trying to help people be aware of you know what phishing looks like and, and what, don't click on that link. Don't click that link. <laughs> Whatever you do, any links, just don't just don't the, click them. There's no downside to not clicking. Like if you don't click that link, your life goes on absolutely fine. <laughs> if the, if the bank wants you, they they get hold of you. I like, think we should just type in all URLs like you know uh, manually. Yeah. For, for good now. Like, that's it. That's it. I'm so scared. No more clicking links. <laughs> and also, on the one-time password thing, like, sending an SMS with a one-time password is kind of kind of antiquated when you've got a device that has so many sensors in it. It has geolocation. It can take your fingerprint. It can take your face. It yep. can take your voice. Like, there are two-factor authentication is one thing. Seven-factor authentication would be really... Like, why, why, don't you, why not use that stuff? It's sitting right there, and your app is right there on the... Fo- I'm pointing at the phone, sorry. Uh, like, but they do, and, and that's, you know, that's definitely coming, and there are a lot of companies that are offering everything from, uh, you know, how you hold your phone, how you move it, how you tap the screen, mm. where you are, location. They can tell whether it's you uh, or not, yeah. You know, all, you know, and there's a lot of development on that at the moment but I saw but again in, we're, we're but I, catching I remember, up I remember when I worked for a company who used to sell two banks trying to get banks to buy this in 2010 like banks just don't buy this stuff because they'd rather and, and look I'm all for consumer education I'm all for above the line marketing but like there are some lower cost solutions here that could create great user experiences that actually aren't that difficult and pretty easy to put in so I, I take your point Jason it is coming but God, I'd like it to come faster. <laughs> Sorry, rant over. Okay, <laughs> on to the next story. Zopa becomes the first of the big three peer-to-peer lenders to be authorised by the regulator. Yeah, by the FCA in the United Kingdom. So um, Zopa are a peer-to-peer lender. So unlike um, a bank that lends you money off their balance sheet, um, you know, so basically they take uh, deposits from you or me, who our wages go in there, and then they're able to lend money against that. Uh, peer-to-peer lending says that actually you're going to borrow some money from somebody else effectively. Somebody else is going to give you that money and they're going to get the interest rather than the bank collecting the interest, although that's not actually how it ends up working because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on. But that's that's a, another story for another day. Um, so Zopa have been uh, pushing for some years to make uh, peer-to-peer lending a regulated activity under the Peer-to-Peer Finance Association, the P- 
2PFE. Um, and they've campaigned for that because they believe that uh, consumers need protection and actually um, having some some rules around that. Uh, but they also campaign, uh, campaigned at the same time that the FCA was, was suddenly starting to pipe up to say there's some investor detriment here, like how the terms work, how you put money in. Do you really understand the risks? Do you really understand how these platforms work and that your money is at risk? So, you know, I totally buy into the fact that Zopra have been pushing the industry, yeah. but you might say that was in advance of the regulator stepping up and before some big some really big issue happened. Of course. And I think the negotiation went something like this. If you come up with your own rules, we'll give you a little sweetener. And a little... I don't think it was said in those terms. Uh, but <laughs> Shall I consult the 11FS lawyers now? <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, this, you know, this is for Dick and Cider. It's good. a satirical podcast. Well, I'll hasten yeah. to add. Uh, I'm for some. Um, okay, so um, the FCA authorization allows Zopa to offer the new innovative finance ICES, and the company says it's plans to apply for the Treasury for the permission to become an ISA manager. So this actually allows them to offer sort of savings account type stuff. And really, um, they've been planning to uh, look at maybe a banking license. We're seeing, uh, and I think this is an interesting model. You see people starting in either money transfer, we've seen Revolut and TransferWise looking at banking licenses. Now you've got the peer-to-peer lenders that started in lending. Everybody finds their footing somewhere and then eventually wants to become a bank. Everyone wants to be a bank now. It's this the hot new thing. Everyone wants to be a bank. And it's like, except the banks who are kind of like, no, you really don't <laughs> yeah, want these guys. anything but, right? But yeah. Yeah, we want to offer new services. We want to do lending and we want to be, have APIs and, and do a whole host of stuff. But it, but it is it is a thing. I mean, we talked about this the last podcast. You know, being a bank and being regulated, is there's a certain amount of trust in that. And I mean, Zopa is pretty open saying that it's an investment you know, you're, you're, it's not a savings account. And so getting FCA regulated is a little bit of marketing. It's, you know, you can, as a customer, you're like, oh, okay, the government is watching you. Oh, you're a bank. Oh, you're trustworthy. Oh, okay, you do offer savings, you know, so um, it, it is, it is a little bit of PR and marketing. It's, I mean, the, the, the big three are, are charlatans. They, it, they're very clear that it's an investment product that they're offering, but now they are moving into that that little bit of perception for the consumer market that they are a safe place. And maybe that helps them become mass market. I mean, maybe it doesn't, but there's definitely something to be said for if they are now regulated. There are people that uh, would use fintech apps regardless of whether they were or they weren't, and the people who really get comfort from the fact that they're regulated. And in a world of open banking PSD2, it means that if you see their logo inside your uh, big bank name here app and you want to get a loan from them instead of getting a loan from your bank and it's at a better rate and you find out they're regulated, maybe that helps. Yeah. There's something that still interests me about the peer-to-peer market and how it's moving towards marketplace lending. You know, it's actually then taking hedge fund money and, you know, and sovereign wealth and whatever, and then sending that out under the guise of this is peer-to-peer. The fact that your peer is, you know, some hedge fund manager in a, uh, you know, and, and is it, what is it that makes them different as a lender? You know, is it that, it, is it consumer a consumer view that I think that Sarah's really lending me the money, or are they fundamentally a different lender, or, or are they just something new? I, I think they've done some innovative things around how they score risk. Um, I think they've done some innovative things about how they create consumer experiences, but actually they've discovered, like everybody, that there's only so much liquidity in the marketplace, and it all belongs in financial markets. And actually, if you want serious liquidity, you've got to go get it. You've got to go get it financed, um, and 
the the fact that you know, nearly 80% of the liquidity is coming from, as you say, the asset manager space, it says to me that they've realized that pretty quickly. And actually, as they move into potentially taking deposits, they that would be a vehicle for them to have massive amounts of liquidity and to be able to fund their own book. Uh, so from a business case standpoint, it's weird that the lending model went, oh, wow, we can do peer-to-peer and this is really innovative, and then went, actually, the way the banks have been doing it all along probably makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think, Mike, from a consumer perspective? How do you see peer-to-peer lenders? I think that a lot of people like them because it's not the establishment, right? So, like, everybody hates a bank, but, you know, like, I think that's that tends to be the way, right? Like, oh, they were responsible for the credit crunch. So then these new companies pop up. And I think it's, you know, it's why these these the, the Monzos of the world are getting traction now, because it's like, this is the the underdog story. I do find it funny that everybody's going for these banking licenses. So I'm interested to see how marketing changes, right? Working in a bank, doing marketing, direct marketing, our biggest problem was FCA regulation. And every single sentence, every single word, every single letter was scrutinized to make sure it didn't upset the FCA. And I, I'm wondering how like a lot of these, these companies and in- institutions that are starting to get their licenses I'm interested to see how their marketing could get impacted and if it's going to become more stale as time goes on, which I think could end up affecting them. Very interesting. Honestly, I think anyone looking for a banking license needs their head examined. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they know what they're getting into. (laughs) So with the work work you've done, you know, with fintech Mm. startups, Liz, Mm. do, do you still see... P2P and, you know, different lending models coming through. That, as a- and that was kind of what, what at Startup Bootcamp we saw a few years ago. There was a lot of lending. Uh, and then 2015, there was a lot of asset management. And last year, it was SME banking. So there, there seemed to be this movement and trends. Uh, but there was a real tailing off uh, in the lending and the P2P space over the past few years. And what's the next uh, trend after SME banking? Um, I really think it's going to move into capital markets but and risk and reg tech and all that place yeah yeah financial markets are crying out for us mm. cool well staying on the startup and uh, do you need your head examined to get a banking <laughs> license um i guess we've got some unfortunate news about tandem there's there was a story this week around tandem having to uh, essentially cut their headcount from 110 people to 80 people after having seen 25 29 million pounds of funding fall through from house of fraser uh, they were going to raise 35 million, but only got 6 million in the end. And without the additional money, Tandem couldn't exit mobilization, which is the, the 12 month period you get after getting a banking license with restrictions to show that everything's in place, to have all the money in place, and then to, to start launching those, those, uh, products so it was really sad we've we know ricky and the guys over there and they've you know they've been on on fintech insiders and um and that was a problem that's a real problem yeah it's a real i i just feel sad about this one i i don't think you can take any joy in it i I mean the the fact that they are doing the right thing to keep the doors open um is probably a hard decision for everybody involved and uh, there's a lot of talent in that organization and i think there are some other organizations out there um that will do very very well to pick that up i'm sure they'll all do really really well with tandem on their cv i'm sure it's a positive experience for everybody involved although in the long term in the short term i'm sure it's it's pretty hard well i i mean ricky's a rock star and um although 
although they've lost the ability to take deposits, he he's come out and said, look, we're we're shrinking, we're refocusing, restructuring. They say they're going to offer a credit card in a few months and actually sort of get back on. But it must be tough when you've been, you know, valued at what sixty-five million. You've had a good, good few funding rounds. You know, is there a down round coming? Who puts money in? Yeah. That must be quite it was a tough real, story. real, the real, the you know, the carpet was pulled out from under them. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think there's any joy in this at all. So uh, on to, I guess, another, like we've, we've got sad stories leading up to the break today. I'm like, I'm feeling real downer on this. Um, Virgin Money walks away from co-op bank takeover talks after months of speculation. Yeah, but come on. It's kind of like they walked away from a train wreck. I mean, That's what I, yeah, yeah. I know. It must be really bad. I, I mean, I, I just, I didn't really know about this until I saw they've walked away. Why were they trying to buy them? Like Virgin bought... Their own license, right? They bought their way into a license. Who was it that they... At Northern Rock, they, they picked up. So they've already got enough distressed assets to be doing. So what, were they trying to get more branches? Like, why would you want that? Like, I couldn't work out what they were hoping to get out of the co-op. Customers, I guess. That's what they were going for? They just wanted to buy, buy, buy some people. It's really interesting because we've spoken about this before that, you know, essentially 2013 when background checks against the co-op because they were looking to buy what's become TSB... Uh, suddenly showed that there was a 1.5 billion hole in their assets. Um, they they escaped bankruptcy. They raised money from some specialist investors, and then uh, that. But in the end, the 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 um, cooperative group share share price dropped to sort of 20% of what it was, and they've been limping along since. Uh, but but what's been amazing for me is that even though you know they've they probably got less capital than they need according to the regulator, and that they're you know that, that all kinds of things are in place for if they falter. Um, their customers have been crazily uh, loyal. So even with this problems, even with the fact that they've had a drug scandal with their former chairman, branch closures, uh, big losses. So they, they announced that they lost $477 million this year, which brings, it, brings their losses up to $2.7 billion over the last five years. Oh, they've still got, you know, 4 million customers who are, yeah. who are there. I think, I think somebody makes a specific choice to go with the co-op. And I don't think any of those things undo that choice. Like whatever your choice was to choose them over a bigger bank, you're going to stick with it. Yeah, but I think. do they have any tech inside that the well, so money was, might it, want? Famously, one of the major issues when the CEO, I think, was pushed out uh, about a year ago was was they tried to upgrade their core banking system and made such a botched job of it um, that that the but <laughs> that it was actually a bit of a scandal. Like what were version of this seems like a nightmare. Yeah. Was, Which is probably why they've walked away, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Th- they've um, found more. And look, the, the strategy of buying a, a high street bank and consolidating under a global brand worked really well for Santander. But Santander have been doing that across Europe for 20, 30 yeah. years. And they know what they're doing. And they know when they're looking at a train wreck and when they're looking at something that's quite well run. Unfortunately, when they picked up Alliance and Leicester, it wasn't in bad shape. And some, what else did they pick up? I Abby. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think the really interesting thing for me is out of all of those that we've mentioned, none of them have such a strong consumer ethical brand, which is part of the problem of buying them. Because are you going to buy them and keep the brand and grow it? Because you, you're, you're going to lose so much value if you fold those customers into your existing... The Virgin brand thing. is very different to the co-op brand. But yeah, I can't imagine them. And I can't imagine Virgin keeping a, a brand alive that isn't theirs. Like... All that Virgin is is a brand. That's all it is, right? Mm-hmm. So they would have just rebranded it. And then I feel like they probably would have lost a lot of the customers that they were hoping to attract. Like, it seems like a very, very strange deal to me. 
So it looks like the market, at least the share price, is looking like this thing isn't going to fly. It's not going to work. You know, bonds have dropped 50% of their value in, I think, February, January, and now to 25%. So there's a, you know, there's a definite... Someone's going to come in right now, surely. It's probably going to end up being some auditors and just, yeah, like it's looking like it's heading that way. Or private equity buys it and then it gets fire sold. Did you, did we have any bank dying like this of a good debt, let's say, just looking at it? And well, usually they get bought out long before this happens, yeah. but everybody's seeing such a train wreck that nobody wants to buy it. I think it ends up at like... Uh, Even two banks bought Lehman Brothers. Eventually it's going to trade yeah. so far below its book value that some PE house will take it, um, and at which point that, that PE house has some interesting decisions in front of it. Like I, I imagine if somebody was to say, alright, your life now depends on saving this thing what are you going to do you start thinking well well i don't know i i think i'd just start again and see who wants to come <laughs> see, maybe they the want us to go and hey look if you want us to come and rebuild the co-op i'm in yeah like, give us a call yeah that, that's the way forward <laughs> so with that doom and gloom uh i think we'll throw over to the sponsors the financial times guides you through complex issues in divisive times don't settle for black and white When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just one reader's choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. 11FS Pulse Update Hello listeners, this is Ross from 11FS And this is Megan from 11FS Megan, it's been a busy old time recently There's been a lot going on in the payment space and the challenger propositions, what's happening? There sure has been, Ross So the first update comes from Revolut They now allow customers to transact in Polish Lottie and Swiss Franc Circle, another payments app, has just launched in France And N26 over in Germany now allows customers to take out savings products And this is done via partnership with Raisin Nice, we like N26 We sure do. And Ross, is there anything happening with the traditional high street banks? Yeah, an interesting development just this week. Santander in the UK have launched a new mobile banking app called Flight, F-L-I-T-E. It did literally just launch a couple of days ago, so we're in the process of capturing that and adding it into the Pulse platform. Great. And where can our listeners find out more information on Pulse and view these customer journeys? As always, head over to 11fs.com and look up 11fs Pulse, where you can see these and hundreds of other end-to-end digital banking journeys and experiences. So thanks again to our sponsors and thanks Megan and Ross for the Pulse Minute. Okay, so 
the world's most successful mobile money market is introducing cross-network transfer systems. What does that mean in plain English? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I was, I was hoping you wouldn't like come to me. I'd be like, oh, Liz, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, so, so having um, read the stories in today's news, Liz. Um, <laughs> I read off, I just didn't read that. Uh, the, this one is uh, basically in Kenya. We've seen Safaricom and M-Pesha has been tremendously successful for a number of years. So this is where you can and pay each other with airtime so i would buy some airtime from my shop and instead of it just buying the ability to call people and send messages i can also send people that airtime as a way to pay for things um, and that's been a case study in how to do mobile money in regions that don't have um, good banking infrastructure uh, and in a number of markets like tanzania what we've seen is that those natural monopolies like um, in Pisha weren't really there so there were a number of airtime companies so it's kind of like imagine the colliery would be uh, in the us it would be verizon and at&t and uh, t-mobile in the UK, it would be um, Vodafone and uh, O2 and everybody. They, they all had their own network, and the only people you could pay were the people on your own network, which is okay, especially because a lot of the um, way mobile networks were done were done by village, so everybody in one village would be on one mobile network. But actually, the amount of transactions you can have are limited because even if you have 80% of the market, there was 20% of the market that you couldn't pay. And over the last few years, Safaricom has gradually dipped to 75 70% of the market as other others have aggressively moved in so the Kenyan government has now mandated that every that the uh, Safaricom needed to open up and Safaricom uh, in a shocking turnaround have gone oh this is a great idea we think this will lead to more mobile money transactions and we fully support it uh, which is often the way when they're forced to do something they put a positive spin on these things but actually it's interesting to see that mobile money interoperability is something we're seeing in emerging markets. And it's a very different evolution to what we see you know, kind of in, in traditional markets or even um, in China, India, where they've kind of gone more the mobile app route. It's different to what we've seen in the US where the private market and Venmo has kind of taken over and done peer-to-peer. -peer. In the UK, we can kind of all rely on our bank accounts and Europe, SEPA's sort of there and thereabouts. So uh, this is an interesting example because will that interoperability go out of country and will we have now an entire new way of people moving money between each other and creating economies? It, it's definitely something that you should be studying um, if you want to know what the future of money looks like in sub-Saharan Africa. It's interesting that we have that sort of digital identity in you know, Estonia and the Nordic regions. We've got mobile money transfer in Africa. We've got WeChat in China. You know, There, there are all of these... Uh, very strong paradigms and approaches that are proving themselves in a particular uh, region. But the question is always, like, where does that spread? You know, and Pesh has been around for a very long time and was always quoted at those conferences of, this yeah. is the way we'll all go. And, yeah. you know, uh, it really didn't remember happen. That. Well, Vodafone at the Mobile World Congress every year would kind of do the, we've got M-Pesha. And it was like, yeah, okay, because through Vodacom, you've got Safaricom and you're going to take over mobile money. But Mobile World Congress is where you go to learn what mobile operators aren't going to do for the next five years. Like <laughs> <laughs> see. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess moving on and talking, keeping that interoperability theme, uh, Liz, Symphony, a secure messaging app, uh, has just got 63 million of investment at a billion valuation. Mm -hmm. Unicorn horn. Ooh. Oh, my Lord. Um, this is, I was really happy with, with this because finally, you know, we can talk about something that's not about retail banking and payments. It's great. Just a little background. I mean, I, when I started writing about the technology that's used at banks. It was about real-time market data on trading floors. It was about trading floor infrastructure in capital markets. And 
famously, market data managers and IT managers hated the Bloomberg terminal. Absolutely hated it. You couldn't commingle the data. It was actually a physical hard box that had to sit separately on the trader's desktop. Um, that's one of the reasons why they hated it. But this is kind of like a lesson in fintech history is that Mike Bloomberg didn't build the terminal for the market data managers. He built it for the bond traders. He built it for the customer based on what they wanted. Um, and of course, bond traders have a certain reputation in the financial services industry. Um, and, you know, they like to chat and the, you can talk on the Bloomberg terminal and there's little stuff that you can play with and it's very social. And so my whole career, there was always this talk that someone's going to come up with a Bloomberg killer. I think Reuters probably had a little you know, a little group somewhere in a basement. An innovation lab. <laughs> well, it's actually when Reuters kind of went to attack Bloomberg, since Bloomberg was basically just a giant mainframe, I think they're the world's largest employer of Fortran programmers. You know, the Bloomberg could see very much that this group, this Reuters group in Connecticut was just downloading all this data because they, they could see everything. It was all very centralized. Sorry to go into the history of Bloomberg. So, but then Symphony is getting a lot of attention in the press that covers the capital markets technology because it is the Bloomberg killer. Now, when I first started talking to banks um, about technology, you know, this was during the client server revolution. Banks were going to build their own proprietary operating systems. So, of course, um, Symphony is a consortium, is a, being put together by a consortium of banks. So banks aren't going to go for a third-party messaging app to come in and kill Bloomberg. They're going to build it themselves. And what I love about this list, sorry to No, no, keep you. on going, yeah. Um, what I love about this is it's very different to like the big consortiums of 75 banks that never really yeah. get anywhere. Um, <laughs> sorry, R3. I, I, there's a lot of people yeah. I like there, but y mm. you haven't done anything. Um, the Symphony is a small group of them. It's Goldman are involved, and I think there's a couple of others. And then, of course, you've got Google Ventures having put money into it. And that, to me, is really interesting. All the data on how traders behave. Google right. is... Right. Yes. Like, like, I wonder why they're interested. Um, and, and I guess what this says to me is like fintech is coming to capital markets. And actually here, especially with the type of organization that's been investing in fintech for quite yeah, some time. Yeah, but fintech has been in capital markets for ages. You know, the, na you know na the National Association of Securities Dealers launched an automated quotation system in 1971 when retail branches were still doing passbooks. They have been electronic for a very long time. Without question. But I, I think the model here is slightly different in that this just has a different feel to it and the fact that Google Ventures is involved. I think that's the thing that you wouldn't have seen before. And I think the other thing that you wouldn't have seen before is the, the fact that they've spun this out as a pure technology company that actually starts to feel and look a lot more like a technology company. And I think that um, culture change is going to be more transformational than the fact that, that, of course, capital markets have been doing technology for, for a long time in finance and technology. But you know, the I speak to a um, number of um, former colleagues and friends in the capital market space, and they will tell you they're still pulling their hair out because middle and back office in financial markets is still remarkably painful. You think retail's bad? You think corporate's bad? Like financial markets really takes the biscuit. Um, and so, and, and of course, you've got really very, very high value transactions, massive amounts of money moving, all lit, written somewhere on a spreadsheet where somebody can get the number wrong. I mean, in, it's 2017 and we're talking about trillions moving back and forth every day and there are spreadsheets involved. And I, I just kind of want the tech to be a bit better and a bit more robust. So from uh, back office innovation, from capital markets innovation to a different type of innovation, innovation theatre maybe, uh, Amex debuts its first Alexa skill. 
So the story here is that the skill lets Amex card members check their balances, access accounts and offers, pay bills, and hear recent account information with the help of Amazon's voice assistant. So can you... Oh, I've said it. Do you think I've just now you, set you've off? You've committed podcast heresy. Is that it? Is yeah, because that... I do technology shows. We have to talk around it or bleep it because our, our listeners go crazy. Michael, you're going to have to bleep this. Yeah, so we, we just call it Echo. Then you're good. Okay, so just go with the echo. Echo, tell me my American Express account. Yep. But the thing that I liked buried sort of deep in this story, um, which was in Fortune, was that you have to give like an authorization code, and it just makes me think of Star Trek. It me makes me think of John Luke telling the Enterprise to blow up. You know, confirmation code Alpha Nine Three Four. That that's what we're oh great talking. <laughs> exactly, make it so. So it's funny. People were talking this morning at this breakfast. I did that. Um, American parents are complaining that it's making Echo is making their children rude, you know. So they're trying to change it to say please. Uh, well, I love that. Why not? Why not have some humanity in your robotics? Uh, the other thing, um, I don't know if anybody watched Google I/O um, when it was when it was aired a couple of days ago, but um, Google I/O announced that their Google Assistant will now let you type to the assistant rather than talk to it because in a public place, trying to talk to your technology is really really awkward. And I'm surprised that that wasn't something they thought of before. But also, I wonder if it's something we're going to start seeing more of because it's really just part of that machine learning revolution, machine learning baked yeah, deep into the that, OS. That, that's I'm sorry, that's classic. The like people get really excited by the tech mm. instead of thinking about how people might actually use it. Well, I think they, they initially debuted a system without this because they wanted to sell their product home, right? They wanted to sell the physical thing you talk to. So they're having people talk to it because you could talk to it inside of chat applications, right? So Allo, which was their chat app that they launched last year, you could talk to the assistant. But now you can talk to it from anywhere because no one uses Allo. It's like originally it was like, we'll put it in here to get people to use this and otherwise you speak to it and we sell you this but, tube. Uh, but I still think it shows how early we are in the voice home technology side of yeah. things. You have got Echo, you've got the Google Home, you've got a, a whole host of things which are just amazing. We've got some at home. My wife, my son have never, I think, picked up a technology since the iPad yeah. as quickly in order to make things happen. But at the same time, we don't have authentication. It doesn't know who you are. Um, I heard of a great new sort of Google type Home of, now knows who you are. Uh, I heard of a great uh, type of vandalism of walking down a street and shouting into people's closed windows like Alexa, Metallica, Volume Ten, you know, and uh, and away and you, you just go. Did it. You <laughs> just did it for all you your just listeners. Did podcast vandalism. <laughs> so so uh, you know it it just shows you how amazing it is. But again, we're at the start of one of those technology curves where the interaction of screens and voice. And, you know, a whole host of It's of coming. It's kind of this is the new frontier. right now, isn't yeah. it? But it's, it's, it's coming. And again, I'd encourage you to watch IO's machine learning um, stuff from last night because they're adding sophistication slowly and surely to it. And look, an Amex skill... Uh, where you can authenticate something is is a little bit of a press release and it's not that amazing. Yeah. But the fact that I can uh, soon say whilst I'm sitting at home, oh, crap, I forgot to pay Andrew that five pounds for, for coffee the other day. Um, insert name of your device function here. Uh, pay Andrew five pounds, please. Authorization one, two, three, four, five. And actually, that's really cool. And the ability to do that from inside any chat application or wherever, because the machine learning is contextually aware, that to me, is really nice invisible banking that we should be moving towards. 
through may may I add something so while while i get that many people are excited about this voice thing for me it's a problem and it's an accessibility problem that's why i value very much the text inside for example so i'm partially deaf and not only that i'm deaf but i have an accent i didn't manage and to get rid I, I oh and i'm a woman um and and um so this affects uh, the the interaction with such an uh, device yeah. both ways so mm. i tried at times to park and with uh, this type of devices and you have to spell the the number of your uh, car mm. the, oh, of the plate i ended up 15 minutes crying in the parking lot because the app would not be able to identify my the spelling i would say l P, no, nothing. <laughs> That's on one side. So on, I'm used that mm. these automatic things mm. do not understand me mm. on one side. I could scream at Alexa and Alexa would tell me, ah, sorry, <laughs> no. And on the other side, Alexa would tell me stuff and I would be like, what? <laughs> so for me, it would be a, a, such a bizarre interaction. So I'm sure there are many people I mean mm. in, in, in the world. So, but this type of interaction, fast interaction, of course, is, is, is usable. But the variety of interactions out there is, is massive. It's not only voice. Yeah. So I guess moving on to our last story and actually taking this voice theme on and equally the accents and 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 women and how different voices and different personas affect different things. There was an, an amazing uh, article in the Harvard Business Review, Liz, this week about uh, recording VCs conversations. <laughs> so this was a study from a Swedish university where they recorded VCs conversations um, in evaluating Uh, startups founded by women and startups founded by men. And actually this week also numbers came out that uh, women get 2.1% of all VC funding, which is down from 7% a few years ago, which is fucking criminal. Um, so some of the differences in the way the VCs talked about uh, men and women, and I'm going to, the ones I think are the most interesting, if the men were young, they were young and promising. If the women were young, they were young but inexperienced. And then, of course, the women were called good-looking. And then uh, the one that I think is the most annoying to me is uh, the men were described as sometimes cautious, sensible, and level-headed, while the women were called too cautious and does not dare. And that's actually one of the most annoying criticisms of female founders is that we're risk-averse. That's why there aren't any women in startup land, because we're risk-averse. We don't take chances. Fuck you. I'm sorry. This makes me so <laughs> mad. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and you, you see it in black and white. And I mean, yeah, and when it is, when it is 2.1% of VC funding, there's something seriously wrong going on. It's yeah. it's not, it's, yeah. That's I haven't funny. read the... The survey, but mm. my assumption would be that the majority of the VCs there were men, right? That's that's what the industry yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, so like I, I, that's, I guess, problem number one, right? <laughs> yes. Like, so in the area of technology in which I play in, which is uh, mostly consumer tech, but reporting and, and developers, this is an extremely hot button issue right now for good reason in trying to find ways to bring more women into the industry at large and this is part of the problem right like in that you're trying people are maybe at like a maybe a middle ground level people are trying to, to find more women foster more women female talent into development into software development to bring them into companies but at the very top where these startups are getting their money it's all men 
right? And that and and this, the, like, considering where from like a ground level and a mid level, there's this encouragement for change that I see now. It is harrowing to me to see that the statistics are going down from seven percent. Was it seven percent, two percent of all funding? Now in, it's two point one. In what period of time was that? This is a few years. Like, I can't yeah. believe that. I cannot believe that because it feels like at a time where there is more focus than ever from a PR perspective mm. on bringing women in, mm. that behind closed doors is getting worse. <laughs> like, I just don't understand <laughs> how a company could think this looks good for them. There was them. another article I read today and it just it just popped up in my head. Um, you know, the unconscious bias is something that's talked about a lot mm-hmm. in diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, someone's come out with a, a VC bot robot like artificial intelligence that would so you wouldn't pitch to a human <laughs> which i would love to see what the numbers look like when that happens oh right so like it it's like a machine yeah. learning yeah. like it, it is uh, you're you're giving it the figures the mm-hmm. answers yep. and then it makes a kind of a central like it makes mm-hmm. a, a neutral response to those yep. right Interesting. You, I can imagine a, vo- a version of you know the voice where you're yes. kind of you're in a chair and you're like I love this idea. Press the button, turn around. It's like oh you're a woman. Uh, okay, I'm still in. Yeah. There, there. I call it. You know what? And I I'm not putting this down because I like all of these things. But there seem to be a holy trifecta of acceptable female-led businesses, and they're either in fashion and beauty, lifestyle, or motherhood. And, you know, I like all those three things. I take part in all three of those things. But that's the only place you see celebrated female entrepreneurs because the other other public sphere, the other tech stuff and finance stuff, we're, you know, we're not, we're not allowed in that world. And so men see that and they're like, mm, sorry, it doesn't quite – I don't yeah. – we haven't seen any – we haven't seen, you know, the women run this type of business before. It's it, – yeah. So for female entrepreneurs and uh, women who want to be entrepreneurs, where can they go to 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 learn more to be to to take steps with people who can support them? Well, I think I think you are right that this isn't a big issue, and there are a lot of people that are trying to work hard to change things. I do think there is kind of sometimes a very fundamental difference in how men and women start businesses. I think a lot of women start businesses inside other companies, so they don't go down that angel route and then the VC route. But then, of course, with the semantics, they're not called entrepreneurs. They've done something else. You know, I started I started my own magazine inside another, a big corporate, but it, it was all me. It was all by myself. I did the whole thing by myself. You tell this to a classic, you know, tech entrepreneur, no, you're not an entrepreneur because you never went for angel funding. You never went for this. Mm. And it's kind of like, well, what do you consider a startup then? Well, with that, I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Simon, Andra, Liz, Mike. Uh, it's been great to have you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I got to swear, yay! <laughs> <laughs> cool.